All right, well, if you will please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 4. Acts, chapter 4. Uh, you can actually find that if you're using the Red Pew Bible on page 911. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 22. So Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 1, and then on into verse 22. Well, there once was a great and terrible king named Nebuchadnezzar. He was a Chaldean who ruled over a vast empire like no one had ever seen before him. One night, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, the sort of dream that means something. In this dream, he saw a mighty statue, exceedingly bright. It stood before him as an imposing and frightening figure. Its head was made of fine gold, its chest and its arms were made of silver, its middle and its thighs were made out of bronze, its legs were made out of strong iron, and its feet, well, its feet were made partly of iron, but also partly of clay. As Nebuchadnezzar looked at this great image, a stone was cut out, though not by a human hand, and it struck this image at its feet, so that the whole thing fell and broke, and all of its parts became like dust, which were then carried off by the wind. Not a trace of the statue could be found, but the stone which struck it remained. In fact, it grew before Nebuchadnezzar into a mountain, and it filled the whole earth. Well, when Nebuchadnezzar woke up from his dream, his spirit, his heart was greatly troubled. He knew this dream had meaning, but he didn't know what that meaning was. So he called his advisors to him, who were trained in such things, who claimed to be able to interpret dreams. But he did so with a caveat. You see, Nebuchadnezzar was smart, and he didn't want to be taken advantage of. So he told these advisors that he'd had this dream, And he asked for their interpretation, but first he said, you must tell me what the dream was. Something beyond a human's capability. This was humanly impossible. One man, a young exile from Judah by the name of Daniel, was found who was able to do both of what Nebuchadnezzar's both of what Nebuchadnezzar had requested to not only give him the dream but to give him the meaning of the dream he explained to the king that God had shown him what was to happen in former days this image with all its unique parts and pieces was meant to represent four kingdoms of man starting with Babylon and descending to others each of these kingdoms would have its own measure of glory and power but they would give way each to the other until finally Daniel explained that at the appointed time Yahweh the God of heaven and earth, would set up a kingdom that would never be destroyed or left to another people. This kingdom, he said, will break in pieces all these other kingdoms and bring them to an end, standing forever, extending to to every corner of the world. And then he concluded and said, the dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. Well, many years passed after Nebuchadnezzar had had his dream until finally Daniel's words were proven to be true. Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom with all its glory came to an end. Then came the Medes and the Persians. Then came Alexander the Great and the Greeks. Then came the Romans. And in the days of those kings, another king came into the world. 
Now, he was not born into the halls of the kings. He did not live in a grand palace. Though he was the rightful heir to the throne of David, his ancestor, he lived among his people as one of them. His hands were rough. They were the hands of a carpenter. He had no place to lay his head. He came to his own people, and his people received him not. But that didn't change the fact of who he is, the Son of God, the Word who took on flesh. He was crowned, though he was crowned with a crown of thorns, grown from Adam's curse, which he came to remove. He was exalted on a rugged cross where he was crucified, bearing the sins of his people. He was laid in a borrowed tomb, guarded by his worst enemies because of the words that he spoke. And there he rested for three days, after which he rose again and broke the power of death. He revealed himself to his followers. He equipped them with authority to be his witnesses. And he reigns now, crowned as king, exalted at the right hand of his Father in heaven, where he rules and reigns, making all things new, establishing and expanding his kingdom to the ends of the earth. Amen. What Nebuchadnezzar saw in that dream, this rock cut out, not by a human hand, was the rock of Christ. And his kingdom will endure forever. That's the message of the gospel. It is the message, the good news, that Jesus' kingdom has come. And that all who repent and trust in him, all who submit to him by faith as their, as, as their Lord, will be pardoned by God for their sins will receive the riches of eternal life with him and will be received into his kingdom, not merely as servants, but as sons and daughters. That's a message that has power. God uses the proclamation of that message to raise the dead, to make people new. And throughout our time in the book of Acts, we have seen this put on display for us in vivid color. This is a book which records how Jesus, the King of heaven and earth, has continued to work after his ascension to expand his kingdom through the work of the Holy Spirit and the preaching of this gospel. Now today we're looking at that message. We're looking at the gospel on trial. Not everyone likes what the gospel says. Not everyone liked what they had to hear when Jesus' first disciples proclaimed this. Not everyone was eager, and no, no one, not everyone today is eager to receive Jesus as the one who has come to fulfill the hope of faith. And what we're looking at today uh, in our passage today, we'll see that some, uh, in particular the leaders of the Jews, were bent on actually trying to squash this good news out. So our focus this morning uh, in our time together is to look at actually what their attempts proved in the end as they put this message on trial. So if you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Once again, we're in Acts chapter 4, and I'll be reading verses 1 through 22. A little bit longer passage than I usually do, but um, I'm excited to get into this with you. This is the Word of the Lord. And as they were speaking, that's Peter and John, 
as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them. They put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? When Peter, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may not spread further among the people, let us warn them not to speak, to speak no, no more to anyone in this name. So they called them, and they charged them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for, that for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God for it. Please be seated. Well, the main idea of our text is simply this. The gospel of Jesus will always prevail. The gospel of Jesus will always prevail. Let kings and rulers rage. The kingdom is here. Peter and John were commissioned by Jesus to be his messengers, to be witnesses. Although they were the ones who are standing here before the council of the Jewish leaders, it should be clear to us as we read what Luke has written for us and recorded about this, that they were there because of the message they were preaching. The gospel is what was being put on trial here. And as we read about what Luke records for us about all this, we see how the gospel actually triumphs over those who oppose it. What I want to do with you this morning is to bring to your attention three key characteristics about why the gospel prevails and how it prevails. 
And we see this in three points, which we'll be looking at this morning. Three points about what the gospel is, descriptors of it. First, we're going to see how the gospel is a sticky message. The gospel is sticky. Second, we're going to look at how the gospel is exclusive. The gospel is exclusive. Third, we're going to see how the gospel is a bold message, which emboldens. So, first, let's look at this sticky gospel. Now, this had not been your normal day at the temple. When you come in on a Sunday morning, you have a certain amount of expectation. This is how this is going to go. Well, sometimes there are days where that doesn't quite go according to plan. And that had been this kind of day, but for good reasons. Uh, To say that the healing of this lame man had disrupted the normal flow of things in the temple... Uh, the things that went on on your normal afternoon at, at the time of the afternoon sacrifice, that would be an understatement. People were flocking to Peter and John to see what was going on. They were filled with awe and amazement as they watched this lame man, a man who had been lame for 40, over 40 years, was leaping about and praising God in their midst. They were hearing as they saw this man, they were hearing Peter and John preaching the gospel, the good news of Jesus, telling them about how Jesus had come, how he had fulfilled the law, how he had conquered sin and death by going to the cross, how he had risen from the dead, and how they were, what they were seeing before them was a display of his power. Uh, not everyone, though, was pleased with what was going on, though. Luke tells us that while Peter and John were speaking to the people, that the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. It's a very violent way to put this, right? They came after them, they arrested them, and they put them in custody until the next day. Uh, You kind of get the sense from Luke that Peter and John were actually speaking to the people for a while, maybe for a couple of hours, since when they had first come to the temple, it would have been about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And, And they were told that they were placed in custody and held overnight because it was evening. So we don't know how long they were, they were talking, but they were talking for a while. Um, even as, as Luke tells us uh, about this work, uh, he tells us that the men who arrested Peter and John, and possibly this lame man, since he's there in verse 14 when they're gathered before the council, uh, we're told that the, the group of men who particularly came on them were the priest, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees. Now, that last one is important. The council, which Peter and John would stand before, were going to be actually the next day were made up of the other high-ranking Jewish officials and the religious leaders, the, the high priest and his family, the scribes, the elders, and the rulers. Now we, we can understand uh, why maybe these leaders would have been annoyed at this disturbance of the peace at such an important time of the day. Uh, Luke makes it clear to us that their annoyance had less to do with the way that Peter and John had thrown off their schedule and more to do with the actual message that they were preaching to the people. And it's not difficult, actually, to imagine why they were so annoyed by this message, the message that Peter and John were preaching. These were the very leaders who Peter was telling the people were to blame for Jesus' crucifixion. Even though they had done it in ignorance, Peter says in verse 17, they were still guilty. And so even as Peter and John are here calling the crowd which had gathered around them to repentance and faith, so by extension they're preaching at these leaders as they come on them, calling for them to repent and to trust in Christ. 
That's really why these leaders came upon Peter and John the way they did, while they shut them down, even as they preached about what God had done to set men free from their sin through Jesus. Now, they were also annoyed because of what Peter and John were saying about Jesus. They were teaching that Jesus, they, they were teaching and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So notice that. Not just that Jesus was alive, but that the resurrection of the dead was being secured in him. That little phrase from Luke is important. Because beside the priest and the captain of the temple, the men who came upon Peter and John were Sadducees. Now the Sadducees were religious they were the religious aristocrats, uh, Jews who were composed most of the, mostly of the, of the high priestly families. They had the pedigree. They were high. Uh, people respected them because of who their parents were. Uh, they included the lesser priests and also some of the wealthy people of rank. They could trace their lineage all the way back to Zadok the priest. So King Leap, this is hundreds of years. Uh, they were known uh, really for their pride. Uh, they were also known to be theologically opposed to the Pharisees. They denied uh, uh, some important critical uh, theological positions. Uh, they denied the resurrection of the dead. They said, no, no, there is no resurrection of the dead. Uh, they did not believe in angels, and they did not believe in evil spirits. So these are kind of your theological liberals of the day, if you will. So they are not happy that Peter and John are preaching about the resurrection of Jesus, let alone that there is a resurrection and that Jesus is the one who brings that about. So we can imagine when Peter and John show up not only preaching against them, but also proclaiming that Jesus was alive and that by faith in his name we might have eternal life as well. Well, the Sadducees would have taken it very personally. This message directly undermined them and it directly undermined their teaching. So, they rush past this astonishing evidence of the power of Jesus' name and in an effort to preserve their own dignity, they abuse their authority and try to silence the gospel. But clearly, the damage was done. And that's what I want to bring to your attention here about the power of the gospel and the effect that it has that goes beyond the ability of those who actually speak it. Peter and John, I imagine, probably would have been speaking to the people about what they had seen and heard until they were unable to stand. They were not going to stop. They were, however, cut short by these leaders. Now, Luke tells us that even though these officials had Peter and John removed, that many of those who heard this message believed. And not just that, he actually said that the number of the men came to 5,000 people. That's more than what Luke says came to faith at Pentecost. And that's only including the men here. This is a revival like we've never seen. The gospel of Jesus Christ will not be undone because the throne of Christ will not be undone. Try as he likes, Satan cannot claw out the gospel once it has taken root in the heart of someone whom God has called to himself. This is a message that endures. It is peculiarly sticky. What I mean by that is it sticks in the mind and the heart and it affects us. Just as the rain falls, from the, falls to the ground and waters the earth before it is taken back up again, 
So scripture tells us the word of God does not return to him void. It does not return to him until it has accomplished its purpose. In John chapter 6, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up. You sketch that? Resurrection? But raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus declares that his work and his word is effectual, that it is definite. What the Father wills, he accomplishes, and his hand is never too short to accomplish what it sets out to do. No one can stop him or say to him, what have you done? He is the sovereign king of kings and the Lord of lords. And the message of his power, the gospel, is the message that bears fruit in the lives of his people. It it sticks there and it can't be removed. What this passage demonstrates to us about God and about the gospel that we've been called to be witnesses to is that God works through the proclamation of his word, Romans 10, that he delights in that, that he glorifies Christ through it, that his word and his calling are effectual. If you're a follower of Jesus, then your own life is evidence to you of his power to work through that word. That's a huge confidence booster, isn't it? When we come to realize that the effect of the gospel in a person's life has nothing to do with our own ability and everything to do with the faithfulness of God's power to accomplish his perfect and good purposes, then it completely takes the focus off of us and it puts it on Christ. It makes us worshipers of him, even as we speak of him to others. When we sow the seed of the gospel, God makes it grow. Have you ever been in the middle of trying to tell somebody, like, like you really feel burdened to tell somebody about the gospel, and, and you're in the middle of trying to make that happen, and, and then something happens, and it just crushes it all, and you just go, there was my chance. The door shut. Don't despair. You and I have no idea of how God is going to take that witness and maybe the witness of other people and to use it in that person's life. We have every reason to be optimistic as we proclaim the good news of Jesus. Because just as Peter and John were cut off, even half of of a gospel proclamation can have a serious effect on someone's life. This word works. It's used by the Holy Spirit to expose sin and to call people to faith in Christ. It's used by Jesus to call people to himself. And as the good shepherd, he accounts for every one of his sheep. Whether you're able to spend months, years, minutes, or just moments talking to someone else about Jesus, we can trust that God will take that word and use it according to his will. It's this confidence in the work of Christ that allows us to take risks, to talk to people about the hope that is within us and the life that is ours in Christ. So we see that the gospel is sticky. It sticks and it goes with people. We also see that the gospel is an exclusive message. Now, 
we're told by Luke that the following day, after they had been arrested, uh, that, that the Jewish leaders all came together as a great council to question them and to come up with a plan. Now, when we look at what Luke says here, we see all the heavy hitters are here. Annas, the high priest, his father-in-law, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and everyone who's part of the high priestly friendly. So those are like the top dogs, okay? And then we've also got all of their rulers and the elders and the scribes are the, the legal experts of the day. Now, when they had been gathered together in this council, Luke tells us that Peter and John and the man who had been healed were set in their midst. And they asked Peter and John, by what power or by what name do you do this? Isn't it incredible that they don't question whether or not this had happened? I mean, how could they? The evidence is literally standing in front of them. So no one in this room could argue the evidence that this man had been made well, miraculously. Luke tells us in verse 16, they even admit this to each other as they're in their private council. So let's be clear. These men were not here to debate whether or not a miracle had happened. They were here to deal with the, imp the implications of how this miracle had taken place. It was no secret that this man had been healed in the name of Jesus. I mean, Peter and John had made that abundantly clear in what they had preached and taught to the crowd. But I expect that the leaders lead off with this question, more or less, because they want to hear it from Peter and John themselves, and they want to hear it in the context of a legal proceeding so that they can take action against them. It's a dangerous thing to associate yourself with someone who's being killed for being a blasphemer. So this is a serious situation. The men on this council represent the highest court that the Jews had. They represent authority, power, lineage, faithfulness to God. These are the religious experts, the men who held title, who were expected to lead the nation even though they were currently under the heavy hand of Rome. These are also the same men who put Jesus to death. And now they're asking Peter and John to confirm before them how this man has been made well. So make no mistake, this, this is not honest questioning. This is an inquisition. The stakes are high here. These, this is the sort of question that has the potential to land you on a cross outside Jerusalem yourself. So the gravity of this situation was not lost on Peter or John or even this man who had been healed. I mean, what would you say if you were in their shoes or their sandals? It's hard not to ask yourself as you read about things like this whether or not you feel like you would have the strength to speak this boldly to a council like this, the way that Peter and John had spoken in the temple. And now they're facing down these glaring stares from the same eyes that looked with such hateful intent on their Lord. Now, despite the stakes, despite the temptation, perhaps, to dilute the vinegar of his preaching and try to avoid death, we see, Luke tells us, that Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, spoke and said, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By him, this man is standing before you well. Not only that, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, the men who are supposed to be building up God's people. And it has become the cornerstone. 
And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Is anyone having a hard time understanding Peter's message? It's pretty clear. There's no doubt about the clarity of what he had to say to them. There are three things I want you to notice about what Peter said and about how he said it. First, Peter spoke here with an authority that wasn't his own. Luke says he was filled with the Holy Spirit. So he spoke as he was equipped and carried along by the Holy Spirit to speak. Jesus had warned his disciples to expect that they would, in fact, all stand before councils and courts and tribunals like this one. And that when they were called on to speak, he says this, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. But even as Jesus warns us to expect trouble from this world for this message, he also comforts us. Do not be anxious. Do not be fearful. Do not question whether or not you'll be able to stand. Do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, Jesus says. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. That is the promise that enabled Peter to open his mouth and speak as he did. Luke says that he was filled with the Holy Spirit, meaning he spoke as he was directed, with an authenticity of truth, and consequently with a boldness that only comes when the power of God is at work in someone's life. It is hard not to wonder what you and I might say if we were called on to answer, or for for what we we say or what we do uh, in the name of our King. But God has called us not to worry. He's promised He will go with us. He has told us that He has authority, and that He will equip us with the strength we need for each moment and that the one who endures to the end will be saved. So we can take that from what Peter shows us here. The second thing to notice about what Peter said here uh, before the council is the way that he carefully identified Jesus in whose name this man had been healed. There could be no mistaking which Jesus Peter is talking about here, who he calls the Christ. He says, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. So, you, you know this man. I know that you know this man because he stood on trial before you as well. You know he came from Nazareth. You know you condemned him to death. This man whom you killed, God made him alive. And it's in him, by the power of his name and his victory over sin and death, that this man has been made well. And besides being crystal clear about who Jesus is, what this council did how God raised Jesus from the dead, we see that Peter boldly goes forward to call Jesus by the title of the Christ. That's not Christ is not Jesus' last name. I don't know if you knew that. It's a title of kingship. It's the anointed one. For Peter to say, Jesus of Nazareth, that's Jesus' last name essentially, okay? To say, Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Christ, has major implications. He identifies boldly before this council that Jesus was, in fact, the long-awaited Messiah, the hope of their fathers, the perfect Lamb of God, the Son of David, the Son of God. 
That is what Peter is confessing before them. Now, these leaders had rejected Jesus. They handed him over to, these Gent- to the Gentile rulers. They mocked him. They labeled him as a blasphemer. They killed him because of who he was. And now, Peter wants them to know that in spite of everything they had done, God had triumphed over them in Christ. And that he had used what they had done actually to set up his promised kingdom and to secure a new people for himself in Jesus. And the third thing to notice about Peter's testimony to these leaders is that he confesses to them that there is salvation in no one else but Jesus. No one else. That's what I mean when I say the gospel is an exclusive message. What Peter means is that all other saviors, all other hopes, all other religions, all other so-called paths to God are excluded by this truth. There is one Savior, and His name is Jesus Christ. In verse 11, Peter actually calls Jesus the cornerstone, the stone that was rejected by the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Uh, This is actually a reference to Psalm 118, which Brad read for us earlier, which exalts God as the Savior of His people. The psalmist says, I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. That's the psalmist speaking to God. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. A cornerstone is is a stone which is set first when a building is being built. It is the stone upon which the rest of the foundation of the building sits on. If we look at what the prophet Isaiah indicates about how God was bringing salvation, forgiveness of sins through the suffering of his chosen servant, we see how Jesus brings salvation to his people through his rejection, through his suffering, through his atoning death, and through his triumphant resurrection. Peter, in this testimony, is showing these leaders, these men who were supposed to be building up the house of Israel, how God had worked in spite of them to bring salvation to his people. Though in their ignorance they had put Jesus to death, there can no longer be any excuse in them of ignorance. We didn't know. Well, you know now. The evidence of God's triumph in Christ was undeniable. Salvation is given in no one else but Jesus. You know, Jesus had told the Jews, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now, at the time, those who heard it thought he was talking about the physical temple, and they said he was crazy. But John tells us that he was actually speaking about the temple of his body, and that when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and that they believed the scriptures and the word he had spoken. We can see the evidence of that belief in Peter right here as he's answering this counsel. In Ephesians 2, Paul explains how God has poured out mercy and love on sinners like you and me. He says, We who were once far off, He has now brought near to Himself by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down the wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. So then, Paul says, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, built 
on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure is being joined together, growing into a holy temple in the Lord. That is the temple Jesus came to establish. One not made with human hands, for he is not the rock who was cut out by human hands, but making a fitting temple in his people. That's the work that Jesus accomplished for us. That is the reason why the gospel of Christ excludes hope in any other thing. It excludes our good actions. It excludes our good intentions. It excludes every other path to God so claimed. There is only one thing that can remove the corruption that is within us. It can only be removed by the blood of one Savior. And there is one foundation upon which saving faith rests and that is Jesus Jesus secured our forgiveness through his death and he has secured our life through his resurrection he is the cornerstone of our faith who also works within us by his spirit to form us into a new and better temple to dwell with the living God as his sons and daughters there is salvation in no other name and there is hope in no one else but Jesus so this is an exclusive message because it points us to an exclusive Savior. Now the third thing we need to see about the Gospel from what Peter says here, and really from what he shows, is that the Gospel is a bold message which emboldens us. Luke says that when the council heard Peter's message, and when they perceived his boldness and the boldness of John, they were astonished. Uh, They saw that these were not well-read, educated men. They, They were uncouth fishermen from the armpit of Israel. This this wasn't natural. What's more, Luke tells us that they recognized that they had actually been with Jesus. And so, though Peter's words were sharp, though they could not dispute what was being done, they had to hold their tongues. In verse 14, Luke says, but seeing the man who was healed, I love this, standing beside them. You see that? He's, He's been laying on his side for 40 years. And now here he is standing beside them as this living testimony of God's power. It says, when they saw him standing there, they had nothing to say in opposition. Instead, they put them out and they talked with each other about what they needed to do. You have to think that Luke must have gotten some insider information here because he tells us uh, about what they talked about together in private. He says, he says that they were asking each other, what, what do we do with these guys? For, for that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we, we can't deny it. Now, these things hadn't happened under a rock. If 5,000 men believed what Peter and John preached, how many more had witnessed this man or heard from others what God had done? This was front-page news. Jerusalem is buzzing with excitement about this man, a man who had been lame for more than 40 years, and how he had been made well in the name of Jesus. For all that evidence, it is clearly apparent from the response of this council how hard their hearts really were to the truth. They couldn't deny the claim that Jesus had risen from the dead because there was only an empty tomb. And neither could they deny the power of Jesus' name since this man had been made well miraculously before all the people in his name. So as they come together to decide what to do, we see that they're actually asking the wrong question. The question is not, what do we do with these men? 
The question should be, what do we do with this message and this clear evidence of God's power? How do we get the salvation that Peter is talking about for ourselves? Even as a light of Christ shone in glory, we see that their hearts remained hard as granite. And they decided to do everything in their power to put a stop to the spread of this message. Don't speak or teach it all in the name of Jesus, they tell Peter and John. Really? What a waste of authority. We are told in Scripture to submit to authority. We are told that authority is granted by God, that he appoints the rise and the fall of kings, nations, and leaders. How are Peter and John to answer this, this charge? Well, we see that still fueled by the Holy Spirit, Luke tells us they answered them, whether it is right to, in the sight of God, to, who is a higher judge than you, to listen to you rather than to God, you, you must judge. Now, you're the judges of Israel, you judge that question, but we cannot help but speak about what we've seen and heard. Now, Peter and John are pretty clear. They have no intention of obeying this counsel, not when it's charging them to disobey God. It's amazing to me, really, how God restrained the hand of these men and let Peter and John go, threatening them about what would happen if they kept on preaching the gospel, but really finding no way to punish them because of the effect that it was having on the people. Even though these leaders still rejected Jesus in the gospel, God got his glory. People were praising God because of this great display of Jesus' power. Now, authority, when it is used rightly, is a good thing. Peter and John choose to ignore this command from these authorities because they realized they had a higher allegiance to preach this message of salvation. They were emboldened to speak as they did, even in the face of these threats, because they had been called by Jesus to spread this good news. This called for a special kind of boldness, which we three see in three different ways. First, we see their boldness in the way they spoke to these religious rulers. The men who sat on this council were struck by Peter and John's boldness. They were astonished by it. And Luke will have us understand that this wasn't something that came from either one of them. Now, Peter, if you know anything about the Gospels, you know that full well that Peter was prone to opening his mouth and to sticking his foot right in it. But that was the Peter of old. The Peter that we see here boldly calling this council to find salvation for themselves in the name of Jesus. This was the work of the Spirit. You know, it's easy, I think, for us to talk ourselves out of speaking the gospel to others. Uh, we decide it's not the right time, it's not the right place, or maybe we scare ourselves out of it, afraid that we, maybe, what if I leave something out? Now, I believe that when we faithfully pursue the path that God has laid before us, even though that path looks rocky and hard, He will always give us the grace we need to obey, as He clearly displays here in Acts 4. Second way we see Peter and John's boldness here is in the way that they refuse in the face of danger to disobey God. All authority comes from God. But when authority, however high it may be, would try to lead us away from God or to disobey Him, we must not submit to that. In this case, Peter and John suffered really very little for the gospel. But in time, we will see, they will suffer greatly for the name of Jesus. When Peter spoke as he did before this council, he had every reason to expect that he and John might end up on a cross outside Jerusalem as well. Jesus says that we must, cost, we must count the cost of following him. He must be our first love. The message of the gospel assures us that even if we do suffer for the name of Christ, we are not losing. Because for the Christian, because of the good news of the gospel, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. Now the third way we see Peter and John's boldness 
is in the way this message burned in their bones. You decide whether or not it's right for us to listen to you rather than to God. You, you guys deal with that question. But I can't help but speak, they say. We must speak. It's like the, the, the gospel was like a fire burning within them. They had to let it out. The glory of Christ was too real. It was too precious of a thing for them to waste it in the face of empty threats from men. I wonder what it would be like for the church today to have that sort of relationship with this message. To have this message burning in our bones so that even if you don't know us, you can't talk to us for any real length of time without hearing something about the glory of Jesus. Talking about Jesus really is easier than you think. All you have to do is let your love for him spill into what you say and what you do. When the gospel of Jesus gets a hold of you, it affects you. It's a bold message which emboldens us to talk to others about the beauty of our King. We are called, in fact, to let that light shine out so that others might see that glory for themselves. So we've seen this morning three things. The gospel is sticky. It's sticky because it sticks in the minds and the hearts of people and it affects them according to the grace and the power of God. It's also an exclusive message because, as we've seen, there is salvation in no one else. Finally, we've seen it's a bold message that emboldens us. It always prevails. It delivers us from fear. It brings us gladness. It produces in us praise, and it has true power. This is the message of the kingdom of Christ, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Our Father, we this morning have gotten to really touch on an amazing story of your power and how you prevail over all authorities, how you will exalt the name of Christ forever. And Father, as we have looked at this, we pray that the gospel would stick in us, that we wouldn't be able to get it out of our heads, that from the time that we wake up in the morning to the time we lay our heads down on our pillows, our hearts would be fixed on the beauty of Jesus' face. And I pray, Father, that as we are so occupied with this message of truth, that the gospel would naturally flow out from us. So that we would speak boldly as your message and as your spirit emboldens us to speak. And that we would proclaim, as you called us to do, salvation in the name of Christ. For there is no other name by which we must be saved. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.